0: Hey, it's Andrew, the Director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to The Archive Project, I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature legendary actor, filmmaker, and writer, Tom Hanks. He was joined on stage at the Keller Auditorium in May, 2023 by fiction and screenwriter, John Raymond. What I love about this conversation is that the through line involves Tom Hanks' longtime makeup artist, Danny Strepek, because in many ways it reveals why Hanks is such an incredible storyteller and a magnetic personality. In the spring of 2023, Hanks had published his second work of fiction and his first novel titled The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece. It isn't a novel about how to make films, nor is it about the celebrities who act in them, It's about the hundreds of people you never see on screen, but are the ones who actually make the film. The gaffers, the electricians, the producers, the directors, the prop crew, and yes, the makeup artists. Over and over again, on stage and in his fiction, Hanks reveals his fascination with the stories of everyday Americans who are trying to make a living, reckon with their pasts, and imagine better futures for themselves. In this conversation, Hanks talks about his childhood, in the long journey of his career, one in which he's been an actor, producer, director, and writer. With humor and reverence, he retells the stories of the incredible cast of characters he has met along the way, while also talking about the chaos and absurdity of shooting a film and the surprises in the process, both thrilling and sometimes disappointing, that come with the massive, collaborative undertaking of making cinema. Here's Tom Hanks in conversation with John Raymond.
1: Thank you, so, thank you so much. Can, uh, can, I, can I just say how great it is to be on here with John, a man who understands the hard work that goes into making a motion picture, because you are talking about the man who adapted his own book into the screenplay for a movie that I have actually seen and loved long ago called First Cow. Right? Can, now, can I just say, if you don't know what the movie is about, let me tell you, What is the title again? First Cow. It is about a village in the mountains surrounded by wilderness, and guess what they get for the first time? A cow. That is the movie. It's absolutely fascinating. And
2: I told people, when did it come out, John? Uh, That came out uh, about two weeks before COVID hit. All right. Two weeks before COVID, I was telling people,
1: I saw the most amazing movie last night called First Cow. You want to know what it's about? First cow. So congrat I love it. I love it. Thank love you, it. thank love you, sir. To talk to somebody. Yeah. And that's not the only thing that he's worked on, is that you are you are quite an accomplished film. Yeah. So thank
2: you. Pretty awesome Tom Hanks seeing your movie. I'd like Pretty to ask some hero. more questions yeah. about First Cow, if yeah. I can. No, um, what a total honor and pleasure to be here. Um, Really uh, quite a surreal and an amazing experience already. Like it sounds like all of you who applauded so much as Tom came out, I f- feel like I kind of know you already, having had you in my mind for my entire life.
1: I, I, blame,
2: uh, I, <laughs> I blame the VHS, uh, the tapes, because, you know,
1: uh, I will, t- okay, let's talk about the business, shall we? You want to get right into this? Understand that, all right. I'm going to ask you to work with me on just this one thing, okay? There can be absolutely no gap in time. There can be not so much of a pause between your riotous approval and my mention of some movie or TV show I was in. So... (laughs) Uh, if this goes out, you know, we don't have room for scissors to make it obvious that you just adored and loved everything I ever did in the course <laughs> of my own career. So if I say Bosom Buddies, I need, yeah, okay, there you go. Perfect, perfect, perfect.
2: pretty perfect. work, not bad. We could do this thing. Not bad, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> but, but, so <clears throat> we, made the, we made the pilot of Bosom Buddies in, I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say in April of 1980. And it was on the air. Uh, we, we filmed our first, second episode of it on Halloween of 1980. It took a long time because there was an actor strike then. But <clears throat> in, bet- in, in between that period of time, there was invented this machine that was going to alter everybody's consciousness and my own career. And it was called the Sony Betamax <laughs> Home Video System that was immediately replaced by the JVC. VHS home video system. Why? Because you could get more programming on a VHS cassette than you could on a Betamax. A Betamax cassette could only get two hours of programming. A VHS cassette, you could take your own shows, and if you put it on slow, you could get as many as six hours of the most horrible video images (laughs) (laughs) that were barely able to be made out. But, officially, you could get six hours. So the VHS took over, but at the time, while we were making uh, Bosom Buddies, uh, and you don't have to applaud the second time I reference anything, by the way, (laughs) only only the first time. The VHS machines were selling at Mad Mad Munces out in the valley for about $3,000, all right? But there was always Kevin's video rental house, you know, some guy named Kevin, (laughs) <laughs> he would have a Betamax side and a VHS side and an adults only side behind the curtain. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> and so he was in business. The year the the year in between the second year of Bosom and Buddies, that cost came down by 1500 bucks. So you could get a VHS machine for $1500. The next season it was down to 7. Then after Katie it, and everybody was was renting video cassettes and thank God because that was an economic bonanza that never stopped, and it also turned me into the nation's babysitter. Because beginning with Splash, thank you, thank you, thank you. I was the guy many of you were entrusted to by your parents. We're going out, we're gonna be at the Saperstein's, we're gonna have dinner. You can watch Splash as many times as you want to, You can order pizza, but if you give Louise a tough time, there's going to be hell to pay when we come home. That's pretty much what it is. So you know me, thanks to the nation's baby service. (laughs) It's called plopping the kids down in front of the TV and watching a movie again for the 17th time.
2: And in fact, today, I I just... uh it took me two seconds to rewatch the opening of Bosom Buddies, which I hadn't seen in a long time, and that is seared in my memory. It was like, oh yeah, throwing the fruit behind you. Oh yeah, the, there uh, was like that. that. Peter yeah. Scaleri, God uh, <laughs> bless his
1: uh, beloved memory, he was a juggler. He was a gymnast. He was a great guy. We made up so much stuff when we were doing that. But I'll tell you. Okay, you want to know how movies, the business works? Okay, here you go. Here's a famous story. (laughs) Believe it or not, I'm going to drop some names now. and just You pick up any famous name I drop and give it to me when I'm done. Okay, Billy Joel. Billy Joel. (laughs) Billy Joel had a business manager that now is notoriously did not do a great job for him. I think it was his brother-in-law or something like Uh that. Uh, put, him, put him in some bad investments, but he also sold off a lot of his rights uh, for really peanuts. Oh, and wow. when we did the, the pilot episode, just as, a, just as a track in order to have something over those opening title sequences, a that were shot in, yeah, just, you know, sunbathing in a parking space and r- running through sprinklers in Echo Park, um, they, they put on My Life by Billy Joel. I don't care what they say anymore, this is my life, right? Yeah. They just took a shot and asked Billy Joel's brother-in-law, business manager, if they could use it for the show. And he sold it to Paramount for like peanuts. Like, yeah, you can have it for 10,000 bucks or something like that. Ridiculous. But the deal was only for the aired versions of Bosom Buddies. So that if you see an old, I don't know if there are any VA, I don't, I don't know if it exists anywhere, but if you see it on anything other than the original air shows, it's just generic music that somebody plopped in. So. You don't, you don't get to hear Billy Joel. And that's the way, that's the cruel aspect of the uh, motion picture, picture. It was. And that's the worst thing that could happen to you in all of Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. You don't get to use the sand. Actually, if you go and look at, say, for example, um, oh, what, was, what was the movie about uh, the Sherman Oaks Gallery and Sean Penn played the surfer that was always stoned? Oh, Fast Times? Fast Times yeah. at Ridgemont High. The video of that does not have the same music as the motion picture did. Because they do not give you the rights for anything other than one version of it. So you might watch and say, hey, what happened to all that great music that was in it? Huh. They didn't have it for the video rights. Again, the worst thing that can happen to <laughs> you. Yeah. It. It's a
2: crime. It's a, it's a shock to the system that you don't get to have that. Um, okay. We are here to talk. <laughs> I have so many questions. I have like four hours of questions here. Is um, so much wisdom we must <laughs> impart to you.
1: Yeah. Uh.
2: It's such a fun thing to get to talk to you about your book, which is fantastic. It's a beautiful, hilarious book. And as someone who has a marginal relationship to filmmaking, it was among the most realistic and and um, just accurate representations of the filmmaking process that I've seen almost ever. Um, but I want to talk to you about... Talk to you about your writing as a and and yourself as a writer. We understand you as in, in so many different ways. We've seen you play so many roles, but I feel like uh, your life as a writer is um, not as not as well known. And so um, I know for me when I'm talking to another writer, often uh, I mean every writer begins as a reader, um, and that you know really writing is emulating the thing that moved you in some kind of way. And so I'm kind of curious to know like what kind of young reader were you? What, what were the things that blew your mind when you were um, a kid? I, the, first, the first book I read purely for pleasure uh,
1: was uh, I was 10 and I read The Hobbit. That was the first movie, excuse me, the first book that I said this looks interesting I'll read it, not an assignment, not something you had to read for class, and I don't, just you could shout out your names, about how old were you the first time you read something for pleasure that you really liked, I was 10, everybody else just, you know, and what were the titles of those books? You know, I mean, Homer <laughs> Price, okay, all right, Lolita, got it, okay, um, HH8, hip, hip, uh, Lolita. Um, and uh, I loved it, I, I blew through it, and here's the difference, because right when I was done with that, I picked up the first Lord of the Rings and said, I'm going to continue this. I made it about 15 pages in, yeah. and I thought, you know, I got, I got it. <laughs> um, Frodo and the Visible Ring and elves, and yeah, okay, uh, man, three, I, I, okay, I think I'm good, I'm good, <laughs> I got that. Um... And then uh, I, I was the type of guy that would go to the library in the summertime. And I started reading uh, books about procedure and real life, even though they were novels. I read uh, the, the, the novels of Arthur Haley, who wrote Airport, about oh. an airport, yeah. or Hotel, about a hotel, Runway 08, Wheels. Um, then later on, I started reading the books of Leon Uris. Uh, Exodus, uh, Mila 18, uh, Armageddon, huh. which was about Berlin right after the war, and that opened up <clears throat> uh, this kind of desire for me that I still do. I, I, I chase nonfiction. I read nonfiction mostly yeah. for pleasure, and if I'm reading novels, I want them to be set in a in the real world. So I learned something about procedure, uh, about behavior, <clears throat> about design, or about or about history. And that's, uh, that's, that's, and I've always, I've always just gone out, but I will tell you that when I, I, when I was in high school, my reading habits were completely altered when I read In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. I'm 15 or 16, I'm reading this thing that scared the living daylights out of me, because this happened, and because that was the first time something really gruesome and really scary and really, really horrifying about human behavior, about the Clutter family, right? Or Clutter or Cutter? I can't remember. Name, See yeah. it? Thank you. Um, what happened to those people were, was so bone-chilling. I never, I never read murder mysteries. I don't read anything like that because I simply don't want to go through it again because of a book I read, um, which is, you know, I think pretty cool. And I read that, like, you know, I, I, I read that probably five years after I started from The Hobbit to In Cold Blood.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and pretty, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how so much of your interests were already cast in a certain sense with the World War II stuff and the um, procedural stuff that's, it's, yeah, it Well, you know, to way. talk
1: about the war, because I will say that this book begins in 1947 and one of the main characters is, it, is a Marine that has come back from the Pacific War, that the his uh, his nephew, a young boy who's only like seven, five, years, not even five years old, this godlike appearance comes to him in the form of this uncle that he has heard about, um, uh, and it's years after the war. His mother has kind of like stopped talking about Uncle Bob. And all of a sudden, Uncle Bob shows up out of nowhere. And he happens to be a true thing that I read about a long time ago, which is the, original, the origins of a lot of the outlaw motorcycle gangs, the ching the lings and the Pharaohs and the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Hells Angels, were Marines who came back from fighting in the Pacific. And they had done such horrible things to other people and had seen such horrible things happen to their friends. There was no way they were going to go back and become accountants. So they uh, spent their combat pay on motorcycles and they lived a lawless life. And that's who this uncle is. And he, he, what, he, what this five-year-old boy is able to figure out is that he was a, a flamethrower and he knows what a flamethrower is from comic books. And so from that, I mean, that comes... So, it goes, it goes back that far, and there's a reason for that. Um, is that when... I'm, I'm 66 years old, so I was born in 1956. I was born 11 years after the war. My dad had... Uh, I was a third of four. And my dad did not see a lot of combat, but there certainly were guys. And I, I've always thought... What, a, what about those guys that are only 11 years after the Battle of the Bulge? There's a short story about it, as a matter of fact. What about those guys that went from 10 years of, of the Battle of the Bulge and now they're setting up their kids' electric train around a, around a Christmas tree? How do they do that? And when I was growing up, every grown-up, every caregiver I had, carried the war with them in some sort of tangible way. Their lives, my mom, my dad, uh, the, the, my stepmom, my stepdad, uh, all their friends would talk. You'd hear them talking, you know, when you're a kid, you're going to go to bed, and you'd hear them talking, and out would come these stories with these phrases. Well, that was right after the war, you know, or I grew up there, and that, I had this job, but that was right before the war. And then they would say, well, of course, you know, that was during the war. And the war was this time of stasis, this time of they didn't know what was going to happen. We we have this place in our minds now because we know what happened in the war. But in 1943, they had no idea who was going to live, who was going to die, or how long they were going to be having to do this. And that, then coupled with Again, I'm 66, I was born in 56. When I was 13, Vietnam went on. And suddenly the war was part and parcel to every single day in America, the war in Vietnam. And they didn't match. World War II and Vietnam did not match. They should have. They were supposed to in so many ways. But even at the age of 13, I said, that's not the same, that's not the same thing. Uh And so this concept of, (laughs) look I'm a I never had to do anything to serve my country. Um, you know, I try not to litter that's what I view as hey, I do my part. I don't litter. I recycle, damn it, God bless America, that's what I do. Um, and I pay my taxes um, that 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 concept of. Guys who either because they volunteered or were drafted or the men and women who after had loved ones that were off doing that, that's, that's a price that was, that, was, that was paid. So I go back to that again and again and again. And the, 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 the character, okay, I'll just do one more thing, explain yeah, about I the book. Um, if you want to, you can <laughs> go to the QR code and you can download a version of the, the screenplay that I had to write because it's about the making of a movie. And the screenplay is called uh, *A Nightshade, Delay the Lathe of Firefall. It's essentially a kind of like one-off superhero thing. Eve Nightshade is a young girl who hates the fact that she has these superpowers, does want, not want to have the responsibility of having them, and just wants her old grandfather to stay alive, because otherwise she will be alone, alone, alone. And the specter, of a guy, who ser- he's actually a ghost, he's Firefall, he's a flamethrower, he is damaged, he is wearing battle-scarred fatigues, and he's covered with burns, and he is coming for the sergeant of the platoon that he served in in, uh, in the Pacific War, and it is Amos Nightshade, Eve's father. So that's the, that's the conflict that's going on there. The, the, the concept of that, that specter of, it's not necessarily about he has powers, it's that he went off to the war and he never right. came home. That's, and that's, yeah. that's, what I, yeah. that's what I keep, uh, I come back to that again and again.
2: And so what you just described was sort of the, um, the property that is being uh, adapted into the film uh, in the book. Right. Um, and the the book itself is structured, sort of moving through the entire process of making the film. Um, in it you talk about... Uh, um, well, numerous times there's a kind of parallel drawn between war and filmmaking. Like they both are enormous undertakings, you know. Um, remind me, it was pre-production is, is diplomacy. The production is the war. And oh, what is the post-production? What is the?
1: Oh, okay. Pre-production. Is, con- is is pre-production is uh, is uh, wasn't
2: like, it diplomacy? No, no
1: diplomacy. Diplomacy is. <laughs> Sorry. Sixty-six. <laughs> I, 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 I think that you know, the, the shoot is war. The shoot is definitely <laughs> the, war. The no shoot question. is war. No
2: question. Yes. The,
1: the shoot is. Uh, 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 <laughs> is is. Terrible. <laughs> the shoot is to be... Sur- oh, I think you're right. I think prep is... Prep is... Prep is diplomacy. Right. The shoot is war because diplomacy has failed. Yes. I mean, that's, that's what it goes down <laughs> okay, to. Okay, okay. Yeah. And post is the making of the peace. Uh, uh, it's like the UN. It's like oh, trying to oh, figure oh, out... Oh, it's how to, like armistice. Or yeah, sort of like yeah. The, yeah. the armistice. Okay. It's yeah. all over, and what do we have to honestly gain from all of that's this? That's great. Okay, yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Um, uh, so... I found it so really amazing the way you moved through. I mean, it is. There are amazing plots. There are amazing things going on here. But really, the organizing principle is this sort of inexorable move from the idea to the um, to the to the actual creation, um, and it's filled with characters who are. Um, to me, so recognizable in all of the different capacities. I, I think, to me, one of the most beautiful things about this book is the way that it, it honors all the labor that goes into uh, motion picture, which is copious. And it's like, um, so many of those people, you just don't really realize how crucial they are to the whole, the whole operation, you know? Um, I mean, you could talk about that in general for a second, but I would also like to talk about some of the specific characters in there, but I don't know if you want to jump into that.
1: Well, uh, there there is a moment... Okay, I'll just give you this. I'll give you three examples of this, right? All right, we were shooting... Okay, and honestly, don't even think about whether you like the movie or not. Just jump right (laughs) in with your approval, okay? All right, we were shooting Turner and Hooch. Thank you, Turner and Hooch. (laughs) <laughs> we were shooting in a real place, <clears throat> right? And it had—this was the day they had payphones, and we were shooting a scene. And all of a sudden, the payphone went off. <laughs> Ring! It's like, you know, right. And there was a guy, bring, bring, and he was one of the, I think he was a gaffer, and they all have tool belts, and he just happened to be standing right next to where the phone was ringing, and it started ringing in the shot, and he just pulled out a pair of of wire cutters, and just with it, and then did it, like, put it right back like that. And on that day, the guy saved us probably (laughs) $25,000. Because yeah, right. he just, re- I, know, I know, you have to get the shot. So if you've got to kill the phone, you kill the phone and you'll get the shot. <laughs> Other things happen like, I can't, if the generator goes down, you know, when you're out on location, the generator is its own truck and there's one guy in it and his whole thing is to run this huge gas thing that is on the back that supplies the electricity for all the lights and every trailer you know, the makeup and hair trail, all the hair dryers, everything. And if that generator goes down, that's dead time that you do not get back. There's no insurance claim you can make for the generator going down. So there's, a, there's one guy there, he might be sleeping all day long for eight, because he has to get there very early. The Teamsters get there first and they're the last to leave. They work <laughs> extremely hard. But if that guy let the generator goes, goes down, dead time. But I'll tell you this one other thing. There's a character in here that is Danny Streep, excuse me, his name is Kenny Shiprock. He's the makeup man. I had a, uh, I had a makeup man named Danny Streepek. He and I made probably 12 movies over the course of 20 years. We were together for a very, very, very long time. And uh, he quit when he was 75, and he called me up to say, kid, I, just, I want you to be the first one to know, I am done. And I don't mean done, I mean done done. <laughs> no more 45 a.m. 5.45 a.m. calls for me. I said, all right. So Danny was making me up one day on some, oh, I don't know, some movie, and I had just seen Casino. I'm not in Casino, you do not have to applaud. Um, <laughs> Uh, although it's a damn good movie, isn't it? I mean I gotta say. You're dr- oh, you're drunk, you're on drugs, look at you. What do you mean, what do you mean you came to me, you came to me, you didn't I didn't go to you, you came to me. Right? All right, thank you. So I th- and I, I said to Danny, I said, man, I saw the North, new Scorsese movie, so great, you know, it's a casino they shot in Vegas. I, it's got to be hard to shoot in Vegas, you know, the, on the thing of the hotels. And he was making me up while I was doing it. He said, oh, yeah, you shoot in Vegas, and all, the entire crew loo- loses all their per diem money on the very first day they get. <laughs> and, and I said to him, did, you, did you, have you, have you made a movie in Vegas? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I shot the Elvis movie in Vegas. Whoa, 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 Danny, Danny. Are you talking about you you shot Viva Las Vegas? In Vegas? Is it oh yeah, yeah, I did Elvis for six or seven pictures. <laughs> you telling me this now? <laughs> All right, so we did Elvis. Another time we're talking about this, that, and the other thing, and blah blah blah. And I happen to be uh, talking about Stanley Kubrick, because he directed 2001. as we're talking about the thing about Stanley Kubrick. La 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 la, la. I, said, I said, yeah, yeah, I was at I was at Columbia when Stanley was doing Spartacus. I said did you did you do did you do Spartacus? Well, I was in charge of the department there. <laughs> so did you do Spartacus? Oh, no, no, no. All, all I did was Olivier's nose for Spartacus.
2: <laughs> so that's immortal right there. And I yeah. mean, I said let me get this straight.
1: Elvis is tan, Olivier's nose and me and in, in, in Turner and Hooch. I'm sorry. <laughs> and <laughs> he was like, was, well, you got to work, kid. You got to earn a paycheck." You know? <laughs> he was he was fabulous and um when 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 my editor Peter Gethers, first said uh, asked me, do, "Do you think you have a novel in you?" and I said, uh, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> and uh and he said, "Look, you 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 work in a very interesting line of work that people would like to hear more about. And I said, I'm not interested in doing a thing about, you know, how, because everybody thinks they know how to make a movie and no one knows how to make a movie. The People who make movies barely know how to make movies. But everybody thinks that it's planned and it's an auteur and everything kind of like works out. And it's not, it's just one damn thing after another and you get lucky and people go nuts and people are great. But I said, but I would like to make, I would like to write about the people that make a movie and I can bring them all together in the making of a movie and from that, from that where it comes, because people like Danny uh, who have um, fascinating lives and there is nothing, look, we all know there's nothing, there's no better way of spending time than asking somebody, how did you do, how did you come to do what you do for a living? Do you love it? Do you hate it? And how did you end up doing this gig? And I'll, I'll tell you this this story, all right? Um, I can't remember what the movie was, but... uh, I am so going to steal that. I'm going to do it. But I'm the guy, so, so I'm the guy in the movie, I'm number one on the call sheet, everybody knows my name, and I need something for the scene, I, can't, I needed some, I don't want a new fountain pen or something, I needed something, so I went, to the, I went to the prop truck at base camp, where all the trucks are lined up, and there's always, there's somebody, there's an attendant on every truck, because you can't leave them unmanned, you can be careful, and, the, and in this case, the guy in the prop truck, a prop truck is essentially a semi-trailer that is nothing but cupboards and drawers. And the guy in the prop truck knows where absolutely everything is. You need shoelaces? They're in that drawer. Need a can of Adorn hairspray? It's in that drawer. He knows where everything is. And I went down, and uh, I said, "I need this." And I'll just say the guy's name was Cubby because Cubby is a name that makes me laugh. I can't remember what his name was. He was an old guy. He was an old guy, and he had he had one of those kind of like knee braces on because in a, in mo- if you work any department, particularly one of the physical ones, if you're a gaffer, if you're a stagehand, if you're lighting grip electric, as they say, you're always moving stuff around, and for a lo- while, it's a young man's game. Yeah. You've got to do a lot of heavy lifting. And if you've done it for too long, honestly, old guys, their knees go, their hips go, their backs go. And when that happens, they kind of get releg- relegated to the truck. You'll work base camp. So Cubby is working in the prop truck at base camp. And he's always got like a decent cappuccino machine maker right there. And there's also some beers right here, right at Rat. So you can always go to the prop truck and have a beer on a Friday night. Um, And so we started talking and I said, hey man, how you doing? Yeah, good. Hey, hey, Tom. Tommy, Tommy, hey. Uh, yeah, this is a good show. This is a good show you're working on. I haven't read the entire script, but what I have seen. This, they always call him the show. What's the show? We are working on a show? I'm working on a show. This is a good show, Tom, it's a good show. I think it's gonna, I think it's gonna be an even better one that, uh, than the other one you did. I think it's a hell of a thing. And you know you're, you're, you know, you're all right, you're all right. You know, I was working Matlock for nine and a half years, and I'm, you remind me a lot about Andy Griffith. You and Andy Griffith, you have a lot in common. Because, you know, he's number one all the time and, he, you know, very respectful shows upon time. But right, a lot like you. You'd like Andy Griffith. You should hang out with Andy Griffith. And I said, so you on Matlock? Oh, yeah, yeah. I did Matlock for a while. I started on Mannix when I first came out and I did Mannix for a while there. For I did a uh, couple of seasons of M.A.S.H. there, 20th Century Fox, because I've been a minor. And it goes, goes through this whole long list of things. I did that and I did that and I was down there on that and I went there and I did that. I was John Carpenter's The Thing. That was a wild shoot. You should make one of those monster movies. <laughs> those, those are crazy shows those monster shows those are really crazy shows and I said well how long have you been doing this oh god man I've been I've been doing this for for a long time I, I started right when I got back from Vietnam all right right then I want to say Cubby please tell me who you were at the age of 19 years, or what was it like, what did you, you know, and this just led to an entire, entire thing about a guy who had a life that was completely absent the movies until he got a job that was essentially about carrying things and moving them around. And for the nature of somebody whose job is not, well, I'll I'll tell you a story, we had a, on Joe versus, (laughs) on, on Joe versus the Volcano, You know, you know when I, you know when I'm out on the on the floating uh, uh, suitcases with uh, with Meg Ryan, and she's conked out, and I'm supposed to do this whole kind of dance and stuff like that. As 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 a prop, we had an umbrella, a, a parasol, and the, the director wanted to turn that parasol into something else, and it didn't quite work. But they only had one parasol, and we needed a number of pa- a different parasol. That single parasol was a nightmare for the prop guy. His, the movie came to a standstill while he manufactured a second parasol out of the same colors. So there's a prop guy who has done everything he's supposed to do, and yet the movie comes to a standstill for the lack of a parasol. And that's what goes, on. I'll tell I actually meant to talk about Danny, Danny Strepek. I did a, um, I had uh, on Road to Perdition, thank you. Um, By the way, I'm always going to say thank you right off the bat, too. On Road to Petition, Danny, that was the first time I handed it. I said, Danny, I'm going to play this character. What do you think? And he said, here's what I want to do with you, kid. I want to break your, I want to break your face up into planes because I know you're going to have the hat on. So that's one thing. So that hat, that's going to give you a shadow. But I want, another, I want another line across your face. So I want you to grow a mustache. You just grow the beard. I'll trim it for you exactly the way I want it. You just grow the beard, and I'll take <laughs> care of the mustache. And I also want you to have a broken nose. I want to do something with that nose because we've seen it in too many shows now. I want you to have a different kind of nose. And so he gave me a different kind of nose, and a, a makeup man with a with a latex nose. Understand? You know that takes about an hour and a half to get right. He had to take a plaster, a plaster cast in my head and do all this. Because and he had on any given day he had fourteen noses already to go. They got to go on. They got to be perfect. They got to be colored. They got to match in. But they also have, He always said, um, "What did he? Oh, what did he call it?" He said, "Oh, he said, uh, stop, stop, stop." He said, cut, while we were shooting, and he comes and he looks at my face like that. He he threw up his hands He said, We lifted an edge. (laughs) Which means there was this tiny little line on the edge of my nose that just came up a tiny bit. And this was before CGI could have take, negated any problem with that. Now you, you don't, you know, they could take care of it. You could fix it all in post. But at that time, the the cinematographer on that, excuse me, uh, I'm gonna, uh, uh, sorry, I'm having a cranial plate shift. I can't remember who the legendary um, uh, Conrad Hall. Thank you. <laughs> If you're, talking about, if you're talking about the granddaddies of cinematography, Conrad Hall is a legend, as was, uh, okay, Money Pit. Um, uh, if you knew Conrad Hall, you gotta know who shot the Money Godfather, he shot the Godfather. Gordon Willis, I worked with Gordon Willis, I worked with Conrad Hall, I worked with Roger Deakins, I've worked with all of them, and they are, artist of the greatest supreme thing. So I'm working with Conrad Hall, Danny Streepick, Paul Newman, hello. And we can't shoot because, as Danny said, we lifted an (laughs) edge. We had to stop and we had to go and we had to take care of it. And so at that moment, Danny's job was the most important job on the movie.
2: Totally a hero at that moment, yeah. Uh, So, one of the beautiful things in this book is it is sort of an overlapping batch of... Why are you laughing? What's going on? Whatever, yeah. (laughs) This is the easiest job I've ever had, is all I can say. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta do nothing. (laughs) Um, But the, the lovely thing about the book is that every multiple overlapping kind of characters get their kind of origin stories of how they got into this racket. And it's always like fascinating and often kind of half accidental. Um, and there are uh, really like actually kind of moving recruitments of people that will happen. Right, yeah. um, And so let's talk about Al McTeer for a minute, okay? Um, one of the really main characters in this and is the producer of the film. I don't think a lot of people even understand what a producer is or does, you know, because they do different things. Well, they, yeah, there's
1: a lot of producers that just have bought the title, bought the project for a long time ago, and they have offices, and their name goes on it, and they sort of hire people, but a lot of times they're disregarded. The actual kind of onset producer that becomes the right hand of the of the director usually comes up through the assistant ranks. They work on the desk. They work on location. They, they're essentially gophers, and, and fixers. Yeah. And as they prove themselves more and more so, they become, literally, <clears throat> on, a, on, a, on, a, on a film, you have the, the three main players are going to be, <clears throat> if the producer is on the set and is the person who is always working out every problem, the, the producer, the director, the first AD. Those are the people that drive the All the others are artists that have to be there and you know the, the the DP, the art director, and all that stuff. They're the artists that planning. But the people, the, the literally the the cowhands, the people that drive the day, are are those three. And um, in this case, there is a uh, the the producer of this of this movie got her first job on a movie with this guy because she worked at a hotel and this anonymous group of people were coming in. They had something to do with something, and she over, I'll, this is a little bit of the book, but it's not a, it's not a spoiler. She overhears a guy, a man say, God, I wish I had some vanilla yogurt with, with rainbow sprinkles. She just hears this. And her job in, in, at the front desk of a hotel is to take care of the clients, take care of the guests. And so, unbidden, she arranges a delivery of frozen yogurt with rainbow sprinkles up to this guy's room. And he calls downstairs He says, what is your name? I said, well, gives her name. Uh, My name is uh, Elise, Elise, Al, Alicia MacTier. Uh, he said, uh, I don't even, why, why am I eating yogurt right now? <laughs> and he said, well, I heard you, you say you wanted some yogurt. He said, I did? I remember thinking it. No, no, you actually said it. I hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you very much. And then the next day, this other lady who is staying there, she says, do you have a few minutes? I'd like to talk to you. And she says, walk me through how you, what you did last night. He said, well, Mr. Johnson in room 1114 said he wanted some yogurt, and I thought I would you know, do that because that's my job. And she said, do you you know what problem you just saved me from? She said, no. You saved me from getting a call from that idiot boss of mine at 10.30 at night saying, I'd like some frozen yogurt. Make that happen. But because you did it for me, you took a problem out of my life. Would you like a job? (laughs) And she said, I, I'm very, I'm very happy on the job I have here. Do you know what we do for a living? No, I have no idea why you're here. We make motion pictures. Oh, I don't know, maybe. So what, what, what that is a primer in, here's how anybody can get a job in show business. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> is, prove that you solve problems. Solve problems before they become evident. Problems before they become problems. There is a reason why movies that I'm involved in now start shooting on a Wednesday. You shoot Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Do you know why? Because by Friday, you know the people who do not solve problems. (laughs) And they get that call Friday night. Thank you for your efforts. Here's two weeks' severance. Pray you will not be coming back to work on Monday. Why? Because you you cause more problems than you solve. <laughs> and we cannot have that during the shoot. So, on one hand, you think, oh, glamorous, motion picture business, art, fame, you know, uh, travel, can, you know, all that location stuff. You know, it's also about housing and, and tickets and restaurants and a myriad of solving problems, which is essentially like, you know, a very complicated family vacation you have, and someone's got to solve all those problems, man. Someone's got to book everything and make sure it all happens.
2: So, you want to get in the motion picture business? Learn how to solve problems. So, one of the big problems in the book uh, comes from the main actor, O.K. Bailey, um, who is someone who creates more problems than uh, he Ah, solves. You have
1: landed upon the one area where uh, people who solve problems... Um, are so empowered, they're like a combination of despots with ADHD. Um, and you, you ever see that Twilight Zone episode where Billy Mummy could like banish you to the cornfield? And they're like that. Everybody's afraid of number one and number two on the call sheet. Don't piss them off. Don't make them mad. Don't tell them. Don't tell them it didn't work. Curry their favor because if they're the talent, you you get away with murder. You get away with, you can
2: get away with really, really terrible, terrible behavior. And so the behaviors that are exhibited by this uh, particular Tom Hanks, I mean OK yeah. Bailey,
1: yes. Uh, uh, I've done it all, I've done it all. You know, every knothead thing that guy says, I've said. I've had, I've had this argument uh, as a petulant movie star, right? How come I can't wear sunglasses in this scene? Why do I? Everybody else gets to wear sunglasses in all their movies, man. Aviators and dark glasses and cool and Luke and Steve McQueen. But I never get to it. Look, it's sun. It's bright. I try to have sunglasses. Well, you know, Tom, the problem with sunglasses is if you will get reflection from the lights. Well, then I'll keep my head down. I won't look up. You won't see it. But I just want to be able to have these sunglasses on, man. Why can't I have sunglasses? Well, you know, we're going to lose your eyes. It's not about the eyes, man. It's about the way I say it and what's going on and my interpretation of the scene. I want to look cool, guys. I want to wear sunglasses. Why can't I wear sunglasses in this movie I'm the star of? And they say, "Um, the studio executives think you look stupid in sunglasses. (laughs) So I don't get to wear sunglasses, (laughs) but man, do I get to be quite petulant about it, you know? So I, every dumb thing that guy has said, I have done on a movie,
2: right, Um, and gotten away with it. Yeah, (laughs) it's a confession. This is the confessions of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I loved how. Diplomatically, well, I don't want to give anything away, but I love how diplomatically he was sort of dealt with, and it was again goes back to the Al Maktir character ultimately, and the kind of actual um, the actual dignity of all the people involved in this filmmaking endeavor. Um, like, it, it's I think it's a remarkable thing to see that captured that 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 you know these are huge things going these are huge projects going on, and it kind of brings out in a way. The best in people in a lot of ways, and it, it makes them yeah. kind of civilized yeah. in a sense. Um, I wonder have you ever had to fire a person? Fire a person? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you do it as gracefully as Al here? I didn't do it at all. Somebody else did
1: it. For me. <laughs> um, there you, you you often hear about it. Oh, there were there were creative differences. You know that's the rubric that it all sort of <laughs> falls under. <laughs> let me let me, t- uh, I'll, 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 let me tell you the philosophy of this. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, Bob is who I've made many many movies with. Uh, the first one was Forrest Gump. Thank you very much. <laughs> and. The way Bob does not rehearse a film. He talks, about a mo- he talks about the film for about three weeks just with the principal cast, the screenwriter, and him. And all we do is just work through the script from first page to the end, however long that takes, then we go right back to the beginning again and just work through it again. All we do is test the material, and we change the material while we're there. And everybody on, on, on Forrest Gump, myself... Gary Sinise, Sally Field, and Michael T. Williamson, along with uh, uh, Eric Roth, who wrote it, and Bob, sat in a room in uh, 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 Buford, South Carolina, and all we did was talk about everything in the movie. Scenes we were not in, things other characters did, whole vast expanses of it. In fact, the entire Vietnam sequence of Forrest Gump was rewritten right there. 'Cause it was originally written as kind of like kind of like Buck Privates with a bunch of kooky things went on. And Gary was the first one to say, You can't mess around with Vietnam, man. <laughs> and and I was saying, actually, I would expect that to be, but why wouldn't I said, why wouldn't Forrest would just do everything the drill instructor told him? And Bob said, That's great. He could be the best Marine there ever was, you know. Why did, you, why did you put that gun back together so fast, Forrest? Uh, because you told me to, Drill Sergeant. You know, I mean, it was like that. So all that stuff goes on. And the reason is because, as Bob says, on the day, which is the vernacular for when we are shooting, there can be no question about what the movie is that we're making. We have to understand what Bob calls the red dot of that scene which is why the scene is in the movie, why it has to be precise. We cannot have saying, well, I'm not sure he would do that, or I'm not sure what we're doing here. We said we work all that stuff out so far in advance so that on the day when the clock is running, the money is being spent, the sun is going down, there's no question about what we're doing on the set. If you've got to cry, you're going to go there. If you've got to have any sign of it, you're going to go emotionally to wherever you have to go. But there are people that put up a pretty good show during that period of time of talking about it, but they're not really making the same movie you are and they're disagreeing about what that red dot is. Now, never mind the vagaries of whether or not they look right or, you know, uh, where or not they match, or that they show up up late and they don't know their stuff and they cost money. Actually, that's the kind of stuff that they'll let slide. But you cannot have an ensemble of an important movie going on, and the key elements are not really soulmates to the material itself. So, um, I, the times... uh, (laughs) The times I've been a producer of some things, I have said, How are we doing here, guys? Are there is there anybody here who is not making the same movie we are? And it, it, it came down to a haircut. Oh.
2: Huh.
1: A guy huh. would not get the haircut. <laughs> and I said, This is about soldiers. <laughs> Everybody has the same haircut. <laughs> and they said, No, he 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 wouldn't do it.
2: Huh. Interesting. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Actually, the first question I said, "Is there anybody? Do you have anybody in the cast that you think could take his place?" I said, "Yes, we have a guy we love." And I turned to the guy who was actually the onset producer, and I just. Now, I don't want to do that. That's the last thing I want to do to anybody, but. I'm not about to handcuff everything else that is going down because one guy wants to make a different movie and play a different role. That is. There's a saying that, uh, that Bob Zemeckis said, if it's not on the page, it's not on the stage. Dude, it's on the page. It's on the page. Are you going to ignore that? In order to, yeah. And the guy, so um, away it went. Yeah. Tough. I didn't want, no one wants to do no, that. No. But yeah. I have also been fired from jobs. Yeah, yeah. There okay. was, a there, Let's hear that. There was yeah. a there was a there was a there was <laughs> a job there was a movie that I was gonna do and it was really great. And uh, I called up the director, and we started talking about, you know, it was about four months out, and said, we haven't talked for a while, blah, blah, blah. We were exchanging some kind of stuff. And he, he sort of like, well, why do you say that? no, I said, well, no, we're just, bull- we're just talking about the thing. Well, let's make sure we're making it. La, 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 la. We had a nice talk. I thought we had a nice talk. And the next morning, I got a call from my agent, and said, what happened with the director yesterday? Is another nothing. we had a pretty good- you're off the picture.
2: <laughs> Whoa.
1: Whoa really? And so I called the director up and I said, look, I get it, dude. I mean, if we're not seeing eye to eye, don't worry about it. I mean, I got to be able to come in and you got to be able to say, we got to feel good about this thing. he said, yeah, I just don't think it's going to work out. So I didn't do that picture and I did big instead.
2: <laughs> it all works out. That's great. <laughs> And
1: by the way, that movie was great and it was fabulous and, you know, it just,
2: there you go. That, and yeah. he
1: made the movie that he wanted yeah, to Yeah,
2: right, right. Um, all right, I'm going to turn to an audience question. What is the difference in the creative process in writing versus acting and filmmaking? Almost none,
1: and I, I'm not being facetious. Uh, it's almost none. Physically, you get up at 5.30 in the morning no matter what. On a movie, it's because... There's a guy in a car waiting to drive you to the, uh, and they don't let you drive yourself if you're too high on the call sheet because right. insurance says you've got to get there and so you've got you to get in the back of a, I always sit shotgun, man, because otherwise it's like it's too cold. I'll turn the thing down. You know, I don't want to <laughs> listen to that. Um, but and, and riding, I get, up, I get up very early and have the coffee and sit down and I get to work. Um, the, the creative process is this. There is Once I figured out what my responsibility was as the actor that comes in, once I learned what not to pay attention to, and there's a lot. There's a lot of distraction. You know. Once you realize what your real responsibility is, you've got to show up, you've got to know the text, and you have to have an idea. And that idea is writing. Uh, uh, there is not a scene that I don't walk into, that I haven't that I don't have a whole preconceived thing that I've told nobody about, and I haven't written it down, but it's structured, and it's specific, and I have to have that because I can walk into any scene, and as long as I have that idea and I have that writing in my head, I can do anything in that scene. There's nothing that can get in the way. Whatever the, whatever the director needs, the give and take, wherever it is, I'm ready to go because that superstructure is already taken care of. Um, That, now you would think, well, that's got to be a big difference. Understand that making a movie is a huge collaborative effort in which all sorts of people are responsible for how you look. And later on, as an actor, I deliver raw materials that they then shape, cut, Foley, score, color correct, add special effects, in which the work that I did is literally, these are my instincts – Take them and go along with it. That's not unlike sitting and writing. And con- I get to control the cadence, the percussion, the timing, the the time cuts, what happens before and after every scene. It's the same imaginative process. It just requires a completely different physical uh,
2: discipline. Yeah, great. <laughs>
1: can um, I can I tell you? I'll tell you a story. <laughs> This, 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 is, this is an example of it, and I'll go back to Bob Zemeckis. When we did Castaway, thank you. Um, oh, great. Castaway took, Castaway took eight years to make. Uh, it began when I read an article about FedEx and learned that they have jumbo jets filled with nothing but packages and letters that fly across the Pacific Ocean twice a day. And I thought, what happens if one of those goes down? That was the, the beginning of Chuck Noland, all right, who worked for FedEx on a plane that went down. Bill Broyles, who was a screenwriter, he wrote China Beach. Um, he used to be the editor of Texas Monthly, worked at Newsweek. But his big thing is China Beach. And if, oh, he also wrote Apollo 13, uh, ah. one of the earlier thank you. Yeah, yeah, he's one of the original. Um, uh, he and I were talking about everything under the sun. Um, we we're actually going to try to make a movie about the Battle of Sanh in Vietnam, but he said, "Well, what else are you working on Tom? And I said, "Well, I have this idea about a guy that goes down in an island in he works for FedEx and he washes ashore, shore and he doesn't He, he was like, "Well a- actually you know he would he would have to he would have to find a source for the four elements needed for for life he 'd have to find." water, food, shelter, and fire. And that would really be quite a dramatic narrative in order to follow on. <laughs> and I said, you're absolutely right. And so we wrote, the fir- we now had the first and the second act, you know, more or less beat it out, thematically examined. But we couldn't, we couldn't crack the third act.
2: And Bob, and I'm saying six years later, yeah, Bob. And so how often were these conversations going on? Like, is this? A- oh, it
1: went on. It went on in and you know we, were, we we would get together periodically, and he would think, and I would think,
2: and it went on. It went on for about
1: two years because we actually wrote drafts of it again okay. and again and again and again. Because huh. um, he went off, uh, Bill went off and did all sorts of research. He went to uh, he went to a survivalist camp. Literally showed up with nothing. And guys, with literally with debris on Mexican beaches, told him how to do all this stuff. Turned out that they found video. They loved having video cassettes that washed ashore because they could do all sorts with video, uh, a videotape, pulling it out of the thing and doing stuff. And uh, he also went and talked to FedEx for a million years and got all this great information. But we could never figure out how to how to end it. And uh, we, we, we were, hey, what are, you, what are you working on, Tom? Said Bob Zemeckis. What are you working on, Tom? And I said, well, we got this, that, and the other thing, and me and Bill, we came up with this, we came up with that, and, you know, uh, food, water, fire, and shelter. Yeah, but you don't have company. <laughs> now that was Wilson, that was Wilson, right there. <laughs> How about that? And Bob said, you know you know what? And then he essentially mapped out the, the entire third act. And so, uh, we, we, in my head, there were 8 million versions, and there was. There were a lot of versions of Castaway that was written. And we were, we were sitting around, the three of us at one point. And in my mind, this scene is in the movie. We never shot it, so it doesn't exist. But in my mind, it's in the movie. And it was a combination of a discussion of, you know, what what is the lesson that, that Chuck Nolan learned, and what was the point of all this that he went through, and he, and Bob said, I mean, how, how do you, why, you know, uh, how do you how do you think the how do you think the movie should end? You know, cause, And Bob said, I think it ends like, you know, on this crossroads, nowhere, points of the compass, you know, is he gonna stay, is he gonna go, uh, you know, who knows, you know, we could shoot any way we want to, but, you know, he could go back, he could take off, he could do nothing, I, we, we're gonna have every option in the cutting room, after the movie will describe what it needs to be once we get in the cutting room, We and I said, well, Bob, I think, you know, I think it would be great if, you know, if, uh, if uh, uh, Chuck is, he's got the, the, his, the, the lady is, is, is making art in the barn with an arc welder and uh, I'm sitting there playing with a five-year-old boy and a, an a 18-month-old girl on a baby blanket and all you could say is the best thing that ever happened to Chuck Nolan was he was abandoned on that island for four years, otherwise he wouldn't have landed in this paradise. And in my mind, we shot that, and it's in the movie, but we did not. But that's, uh, that's the power of some of the writing that goes into a movie. And I will say that at the end of the movie, that's, you know, that's there as far as I'm concerned. That possibility is there as Chuck watches... Um, uh, Larry, Larry Walton, I think was her name, as, uh, as she drove off with the angel wings on the back of the truck. And that was Bob. Yeah, man, it's got to have angel wings on it, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it'll match, you know, it'll, that, that's why he, Bob said this great thing, you know, you, you rip open all the boxes, right? Because, you know, what's in the uh, this is, one well, with angel wing, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe this angel wing should stay right there, you know. There's Bob. That's Bob said <laughs> that uh, at his finest. Now, you know, I, I don't, I'm not just telling movie story. that's the stuff that I hint at. The versions of all of this, I hope, is in this, that kind of thing that who would have thought there is a, uh, one, of the, one of the characters in there essentially gets a job because there's a cutaway to him in this other movie that they just kind of shot because they didn't have anything they wanted to do, they just needed to shoot something. And it goes into the 47 minute mark of a movie and it got a huge laugh. They didn't do it to get a huge laugh. It was just the juxtaposition. And that's that's an example of the raw materials that we the actors supply and they make, you know, they they spin it into gold later on in the process.
2: Yeah. Have you ever been really shocked by what they spun out of your stuff? Oh
1: my God. Oh constantly. All that and also I've been horrified. There is a, I'll tell you, this is how stupid actors are, you know. These are gluttons for punishment. If, if, I can tell you right now, I'm in a, I'm in a number of movies that are, are terrible. Um, (laughs) Mostly because I am so bad in these movies and I'm so filled with these kind of looks and all that kind of stuff. At the moment I did it, I was totally lost in my own emotional, you know, (laughs) Uh, uh, Psychodrama, but as it comes out, it's just kind of like, what is Hank doing in this thing? <laughs> he looks so stupid in those sunglasses, you know. <laughs> and there, there's the character, the 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 Wren who plays who plays Eve Nightshade into the actress does. She finds herself in this position, and anybody who has a movie that is playing on cable has been in the same exact position. I don't, I don't watch movies again, by and large, because they don't change after you see them for the first time. You know, it's not like it goes faster or your voice is deeper. You know? You're just as fat in that movie now as you were when you shot it. You're just as, you know, your voice is just as squeaky and uh, you, you have the same dumb look on your face. But. Um, The good stuff, you don't want to examine too much because you learn nothing from stuff that pleases you. You only learn from stuff that is very, very painful. So if I'm going through the grid and I see one of my good movies, I'll just blow right past it. Oh, I like that one. Oh, that came out good. A couple of good stuff in that, you know. Oh, you know, Denzel's amazing in that. I just go through all that kind of stuff. I don't need to see those things again. But if, if I see that there's a movie that I hate, that I know I'm really bad in... I will set it on channel one five six, put the remote down and said, I'm not moving until it's that horrible scene that I'm so terrible that comes up in. Wow. And it fills me with self-loathing, but I make myself, I make myself watch it, if only to say what Ren says when she sees herself in one of those scenes. Never again. Never again. <laughs> never, 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 never again will I be so stupid as to take that job and then do it like I did. <laughs> I'm not gonna do it, but you, I, that's the only time I will go back and re-examine my, although, uh, you know, like when, uh, when we did Bosom Buddies, uh, Peter Scaleri, God bless his, uh, uh, his uh, beloved memory, um, uh, every now and again, I, I have watched those, like, you know, it's sort of like a museum piece, because it looks, I don't even remember doing them yeah. at all anymore, but I remember Peter's lines. Isn't that a weird thing? Because he and I were like, you know, yeah. we were we were connected at the hip, but we had a yeah. lot of, we we invested so much in two, you know, strikes shortened seasons on it. But I could sit there and watch, oh, watch what Peter does here. I remember his dialogue. Watch, yeah. watch what he does here with that little bit. Listen to the way he says, you know, flax. There's one there's one great there's one great joke that still cares. We're we're trying to talk, we're we're young kids, you know. And uh, you know, I look like an idiot in it. And it uh, says, uh, "So, what's your idea of a of a of a of the perfect woman?" Well, you know, she needs to be, you know, uh, a, a flaxen-haired. I said, "What color is, is is What color is that?" He said, "Well, you know, hair that is the color of uh, uh, flax." <laughs> <laughs> so he says that it absolutely kills me. So that's good stuff to read to rediscover. <laughs> but I never learn anything by watching myself again. Uh, nothing at all. Nothing at all. And Ren does that in a thing. She stays up at night and tells herself, never again, never again, never again. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, all right, I'm going to do another uh, question from the crowd. Um, what street do you recommend taking as an alternative huh? to Fountain? You've got to take Fountain, man. Famous, famous, famous story. Betty Davis. And
1: actually, there's a couple of murals on Fountain Avenue, like on the side of a liquor store, that tell this story. When asked... When asked uh, how how best to make it in Holly, make it into Hollywood um, uh, by a by a, by a wannabe Betty Davis said take Fountain Fountain <laughs> Fountain is the boulevard There's There's Melrose There's Santa Monica uh, There's Hollywood There's Sunset Those are all very busy Fountain is essentially almost like a freeway that you could just like blow into town. <laughs> Uh, you can also say take outpost, you know, there's a lot of streets that <laughs> take La
2: Brea, you know, depending where you are, but that's the, that's the, that, that's the street. Um, all right, I'm going to ask one, one more question. I think we're getting to the point. Um, we've talked a bit about the plot and the characters of the book. Um, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the setting, which is uh, Northern California, California. Um, and which I know uh, goes back to probably your deepest sort of childhood memories of some yeah, kind, right? Like, yeah, I, I wonder um, how much of the choice to locate the production was in this place that yeah, is... Yeah, there, there, there's two aspects of it. One, there, there are, there's actually one
1: really great reason to, to say yes to a movie, and that's the location like where it shoots. Because yeah. there's great adventures to be had there. My, my family will talk about the summer we spent in Evansville, Indiana, making League of Their Own. This was, this was. <laughs> it was paradise for all of us. You know, and I grew up in Oakland, California. This is, you know, Indiana is not exactly Oakland, California. And certainly Seattle with the Sleepless in Seattle. But, you know, I've. I've lived and worked in Paris, in London, in literally Casablanca, Morocco. I've shot in, in, in Marrakech. I've shot in Fiji. I've gone to these kind of places and plunked down and become actually an invested part of the town for the better part of four months. Because you know, at first, they're all excited. Oh, my God, the movie is here. Wow, exciting. And about three weeks later, you're buying groceries, you know, at the Wince's supermarket. I said, Hey, Tom. <laughs> How's shooting going? Hey, where were those lights out there by the football field? Was that you guys out there shooting that night? Yeah, yeah. Kept me awake. (laughs) And so you kind of like get to know everybody. Um, My parents pioneered the marriage dissolution laws for the state of California. Uh, they, got, they got divorced uh, right after they figured out they hated each other. <laughs> they patched it up later on, and they were great. But there was that period of time, like 1961, when the only people that were getting divorces were Elizabeth Taylor and George Zsa, Zsa Gabor, <laughs> and Bud and Fran- and Janet Hanks. They got divorces. <laughs> they got divorces, too. And, there, and we ended up moving out. But my mom stayed there with my younger brother, and she lived. she ended up... Uh, having a pretty good life uh, in a little town called Red Bluff, California. If you go down to five, oh, yeah. if you're going down from here, you'll hit Weed. I love the name Weed. It's great. You know, Weed. <laughs> Hippest town in California now, you know. <laughs> yeah. Weed, you know, Mount Shasta, Redding, Redding. Uh, Anderson, Red Bluff. And then farther down, Corning. Uh, Mount Lassen is there, Mount Shasta is right there. And uh, I would go there, uh, I started going there when I was seven years old uh, to, to summers to be with my mom and the rest of the rest of the family, a couple of knot headed uh, stepfathers every now and again. Eh, yeah. yeah. Eh, they loved my mom, my mother loved them, there you go. But it was really a, almost like a William Soroyan human comedy kind of summer existence. Yeah. We'd ride our bikes, we'd go to the Foster's Freeze, we'd swim at the city pool, we'd go out to Dog Island and swim in the Sacramento River, we'd go to the State Theater and you see... <laughs> Planet of the Apes. Uh, how about that? You know, yeah. literally, I saw Planet of the Apes at the State Theater in Red Bluff. And then I'm working with Danny Streetbeck, who did the makeup. And oh yeah,
2: manic, right, right and I yeah.
1: Can't believe it. You know, I said, I, don't mind. I said, "Danny, I saw Planet of the Apes at the State Theater in Red Bluff, California." Uh, and it was always there was also part of it too is that because uh, I lived in Oakland with my dad and 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 pretty good step parents. Um, and I would ride the bus, and a lot of times I'd be up on the bus by myself, and it was really, it was a, it was a, a point of, in transit that was really fueled in imagination that was based on, I just looked out the window and daydreamed. Yeah. And uh, the, the combination of the separation, getting on a bus, being by myself for four and a half hours, getting off in kind of Red Bluff with a newsstand where I bought comic books from, I helped right. a buddy with a paper route, we, you had, they had deposit bottles for sodas back then, so you'd collect those and go get, you know, a nickel a piece and have 25 cents, and so you could buy another one, and go on. And it was paradise. And when I was thinking about the perfect place, I wanted the geographic precision as well as the searing heat of a summertime yes. that we had. Oftentimes Red Bluff is like the hottest place oh, yeah. in the nation, or was when I was growing up. 102 in Red Bluff today, yeah. 107 in Red Bluff today. It was, kind of, it was kind of like paradisical. And be a kid with, you know, 45 cents in your pocket and, your, and a bike and just riding around this kind of like town Sleepy town. <laughs> now found out later. Red Bluff. Red Bluff has the highest per capita number of parolees of any city. <laughs> because it's a very very cheap place to yeah, live right. now. Uh, but we went around to all the things and uh, the, I, I you know you write what you know. Okay, I'll do that. And I, I um, uh, if, how many writers do we have in the room here? Right. All right. If you don't, if you're not writing what you know, you write what you learn. You know, you go off and do the work so that you you do know it. And uh, the power of the setting of uh, of uh, a small town like uh, like Red Bluff it, it it's very
2: evocative to everything that happens in the in the book. So that's where I said it. Yeah, and there's a lovely kind of movement in the book that from the from the germ of the idea to the making of the film, it all sort of comes back to that kind of uh, location in a way. Is the, yeah, there's, yeah.
1: There's, uh, this is the other thing that happened, and I've done this
2: many, 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 many times
1: on movies. You're in a real place and you're really running around, and so everything about it is tactile. Real stairs, real town, real trees, real everything. And then you have to go and finish what those sequences are. So you go into essentially an uh, airline hangar, wrapped in green screen, there's nothing real there at all. And that's where you shoot the rest of the movie. You're hanging from something, you're running from something, and that's where the CGI special effects come in. And y- it will drive you insane having to imagine the real world inside this completely, completely fake green, harshly lit. Uh, environment and you you can't understand why the DP is so freaked out about the lighting on green screen because it turns out it's incredibly artificial then there the angles and the temperature and everything else about the light becomes hugely important because if it's off by anything the amount of money that is spent in post-production in order to make it right is is bone crushing <clears throat> it's getting a little bit easier now because Uh, Here, now now a lot of movies are being shot in what's called a volume. So it's not green screen, it's not artificial, they actually have huge uh, uh, LCD or TV screens, you know, Uh huge massive things. And they have already placed in them uh, the images that are going to be in the movie. So you're actually, the way the camera, like, like all the Mandalorians, you've watched the Mandalorians? They're all shot in volumes. So there's no, more, there's no more green screen. They are essentially in, in front of huge television screens in which everything has already been made in a game engine and happens in, in real time. We just shot a, uh, a huge mini-series that will be out uh, in January called Masters of the Air about B-17s, and we shot a lot of that. All right, I hope you like it. <laughs> we, uh, we shot a lot of it uh, in in volume, and I was talking to uh, the actors in, it, and I said, "Dude, I haven't really worked in a volume. How, what'd you make of it?" And I said, they said it was really great because they're you know they're flying in planes, and they see what is you know they literally it's there. they see the the dogfights and stuff like that, so everybody is looking at the same exact thing. The amount of technical stuff. The, that is coming down the pike makes I will tell you this one other and I, I guess we 'll have to wrap up um, <laughs> the biggest I will say this the biggest change in making movies that we do make reference to in here mm-hmm. is the speed with which they happen now. they happen it used to be the lights were very finicky, They were arc lamps they took forever to set up lights now are essentially l uh, l uh, led panels or kino flows. They, they're, the lighting setups are very fast. If you are doing anything as far as uh, CGI goes, it's out there, they do it all in post and they can fix actually almost anything. So this idea that you have hours and hours and hours to kill now on a movie set, <laughs> yeah. you don't. They are ready for you, ready for you so quick that it ends up
2: almost being a, a,
1: yeah. young,
2: man, a young man's game. That's wild. Um, okay, one more quick question. Bring it on. This is from uh, the audience. <clears throat> Other than modern, which you told Ann Patchett you were thinking of adding, oh, yeah. is there any other M word you would like to add to the title? <laughs> I was going to be the making of another modern major motion picture masterpiece. <laughs>
1: and my editor said, hmm, I'd lose modern. <laughs> All right. Uh, how about uh, 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 magnificent? Uh, um, <laughs> Well, let's, let's see there, the making of another major motion picture uh, masterpiece. Mega it, masterpiece. Uh, mega, oh, hey, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. uh, how about, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, the making of another <laughs> major,
2: ma- okay, I
1: don't know, something yeah, all like right. that. All right.
2: We'll go with. Uh, this so is for everyone Obama to Gillen. ponder on your way out. Um, thank you so much, Thank sir. you, thank you, this John. This has really so Thanks great. Thanks for coming,
1: everybody. Can I just say one thing? This book is fantastic. All right. Um, let me just say one thing. Thanks so much for having me. This, this is, I, I've done a, a number of cities, uh, and this is the first one. We're going to tell the audience that you should check the copy of your book because in one of them is a $5 bill that is meant <laughs> just for someone. Seriously, check <laughs> it out. Yeah. So check those, check those pages right now. There you go. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.
0: That was Tom Hanks in conversation with John Raymond from the Keller Auditorium in May, 2023. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Matthew Workman for radio and podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson, Alberto Swem, and I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.